Today we're talking about pain. We are talking about the nature of pain, the biology of pain, and I want to start out with this idea that pain is a blend of the physical and the emotional. And to start that out, I want to talk about how neuroscience, well, we'll get to this point where neuroscience shows that when you can control the emotional part, that emotional aspect of pain, it becomes much easier to, oh, oh we're getting an echo. Uh, it becomes much easier to manage the physical part. So pain is a blend of the physical and the emotional. Okay, so let's begin with a thought experiment. If you were to build a robot, right, and you wanted it to avoid getting damaged, what would you do? Now, I'm not a roboticist at all, but this is just a simple thought experiment to get us thinking about the adaptive evolutionary utility of pain. So building this robot would be a difficult job because you'd need to design sensors throughout its body that detected damage when it occurred. Then you'd need to hook these sensors up to the robot's central computer in a way that allowed it to change its behavior in response to damage or potential damage. So ideally, you would want the robot to not merely react to ongoing damage, but to change its behavior before damage occurred, right? You would want the robot to be able to predict what sorts of things would cause damage and to avoid them as much as possible. Now that sounds pretty simple, but of course it's not always easy to predict what will cause damage, like especially if you were to place this robot in a completely novel environment. If it had no knowledge of ice, properties of ice, for example, it would not know that walking on ice might cause it to fall over and sustain serious damage. And since there is no way to program responses to every possible source of dam damage ahead of time, you would want the robot to be able to learn from its experiences. So when it does fall on the ice, you would want it to take note that walking on ice may not be a good idea. Okay, so futuristic as this may appear, right? Seems like way into the future this sort of thing might happen. Although if you've watched any of the Boston Dynamics robots on YouTube, you'll know that there's some pretty amazing stuff happening with with robotics. But my point here is that there are literally trillions of even more sophisticated robots than the one I've just described walking around the earth at this moment. And I say robots, quote unquote robots. You are one of them. Your body is suffused with millions, if not more, sensors similar to the damage sensors in our hypothetical robot. They are your sensory nerves, especially a subcategory called nociceptors. These are specialized for sensing painful or noxious, potentially damaging stimuli. It's nociceptors. And similarly, your brain is analogous to that central computer that coordinates the robot's behavior in response to the activation of these sensors. And like the robot, your brain not only reacts to potential bodily damage, but also predicts it and learns from experience. But unlike that robot, 
your damage sensing system has an additional layer of sophistication. It has a conscious feeling of pain. Now, like all feelings, pain is generated by your brain, mainly in response to actual damage occurring to tissues in the body, right? You know, for example, you break your leg and nociceptors throughout the damaged skin and muscles and ligaments and bone will send a torrent of signals to your brain, informing it in no uncertain terms that serious, potentially life-threatening damage has occurred. But less dramatically, if you're standing in one position for too long, uh, maybe you have a standing desk or something like that, you'll get a barely, pen barely painful sensation in your foot or in your leg or elsewhere, and that will intensify if you don't change your position in some way. You might not even notice this, but there's these constant sort of shifting of your body going on in response to this kind of signal, pain signal. Your brain, right, then reacts by initiating motor commands to shift the body, shift the position of the body in some small way, possibly by just shifting weight from one foot to another. So this form of pain is extremely important for keeping us from sustaining slowly progressing injuries throughout our daily lives. Now, in both of these cases, it's clear that pain is extremely beneficial for survival and well-being. Because of course, breaking your leg is excruciating, but without that pain, you would have no reason to seek treatment. And this would likely lead to infection or even more immediately to a lethal loss of blood. When pain happens in response to tissue damage and when we can do something about it, pain is clearly adaptive, helpful, and good. Yet, a huge number of people suffer from chronic pain, and some of this has no discernible physical cause. For some reason, we can experience pain without any real tissue damage being present. Now, sometimes this is a result of previously damaged or otherwise just dysfunctional sensory nerves that are misinforming the brain of ongoing tissue damage that simply doesn't exist. So it's a, a sort of peripheral nerve issue. But I believe more often the problem is with the brain itself. Sometimes the brain develops a kind of habit, a bad habit of generating a feeling of pain in a specific area of the body, even when there is no pain signal coming from that area. Maybe you've had a, a bad injury in the past. I broke a rib a few years back and there's occasionally I'll feel a sensation in that area as if that pain is still there. Now, I don't have a chronic ongoing pain, but that is not uncommon for some people who have had um, serious traumatic injuries. But more generally, this, this generation of, of pain in specific area of the body when there's no pain signal coming from that area why would the brain do this? So to answer that, we have to take a closer look at what pain really is, really start to understand the nature of pain. And as we get into this fascinating area of science, I want to first note that uh, much of the information I'll be discussing in the following section comes from a really wonderful review article by Dr. Lauren Atlas, which was published in the uh, very prestigious journal 
Annual Reviews of Neuroscience in 2023. And you can find that citation in the references section below. I'll also be using some other um, sources that you can find in that same uh, section of the description below. Okay, so let's talk about how pain has this malleability to it, sort of flexibility. Pain is not merely a perception, but also an emotion, or at least it is deeply entangled with emotion. This is what I was talking about at the beginning of the episode. One way of putting this is that pain has a physical component and an affective or emotional component. So many of us know what it's like to feel pain that's only in our heads. For example, you might have had a stomach ache because you're very anxious about something, maybe an upcoming job interview or some kind of presentation or something like that. Or maybe you've experienced depression and felt a diffuse sense of pain throughout your entire body for no discernible physical reason. And right there, I'll, I'll put a caveat because depression has been associated with um, uh, higher levels of inflammatory markers. So there's there may be more inflammation in the body and even the brain in certain um, cases of depression. So there could be this uh, s stimulation of these, these uh, pain sensing nerves. Uh, and that could be one reason for that sort of pain. Uh, but that is uh, kind of an aside that the point is that we, we know what it's like to have a pain that is not due to a physical cause. And it has an emotional uh, antecedent. So in a more nuanced way, you may have noticed that while experiencing physical pain, real physical pain, it's often more comfortable, it's pretty much always more comfortable to be calm and accepting toward it, toward the experience, rather than to be anxious and resistant. Now, one reason for that overlap between pain and emotion is that many of the brain mechanisms and brain regions and networks that are involved in stress and anxiety seem to also be involved in pain. Now, this includes regions like the brainstem, the amygdala, excuse me, the cingulate cortex, the insula, and the prefrontal cortex, and uh, its associated cognitive control networks. Now, that's just an overview. We'll get into that a little bit more as we go. But the point is that this, this uh, one, one outcome of this, that this neural overlap, something it helps to explain is a fascinating phenomenon known as the placebo effect. Now, we've probably all heard of the placebo effect. And it is an example of expectations shaping perception. So it describes a situation where someone experiences a health benefit, maybe pain reduction, in response to something that has no direct effect on the relevant biology. This effect is strongest in pain reduction. So, uh, and that's a, as opposed to other kinds of health outcomes, maybe like uh, clearing an infection, or some other sort of medical condition. So it's a, it, the placebo effect seems to be, according to studies, strongest in the area of pain reduction. 
So for example, how this might work is say uh, you're at the doctor's office and the doctor spreads cream on your arm before stabbing it with a needle, right? giving you a shot. And he tells you that the cream will greatly reduce your pain. In that case, you will probably experience a lesser degree of pain. Right? This is just the placebo effect, right? Even if that cream has zero effect on your biology. Interestingly, though, the doctor could also do the reverse. So if he told you that the cream would actually increase the pain of the needle, don't know why he might do this, but for some reason, um, you would probably experience a higher degree of pain. So this can go in both directions. Now this effect, this modulation of pain without any real change to the underlying biology can seem strange or even mystical or otherworldly. But if you start thinking of pain as being partly an emotion, it really begins to make sense, or at least having this deeply entangled emotional component. So for example, outside of, if we get away from pain for a moment, for example, if, if a credible source, right, somebody tells you that there is a high chance that you'll be attacked if you're alone on the streets at night in some foreign city you've never been to, and then you go to that city, you'll probably be more fearful while walking alone at night compared to if you're told that these sorts of attacks are extremely rare, right? So extending this idea, right? Imagine if you were not only told that violent crime was very prevalent, but you also happen to get mugged while walking alone in the city. Even if in reality, the city has a very low crime rate, this combination of a, a false expectation, right? This is a dangerous city. And your personal experience of being the victim of a rare crime would probably make you even more anxious and fearful while walking through the city at night. So th there's this combination between these, this uh, expectation and then your experience even if that uh, is actually rare and this city has a low violent crime rate and you're very unlikely to get mugged again. So expectations shape emotional experiences. That's all I'm trying to get at there. So let's go back to the doctor's office. Let's say you're gonna get two shots this time. So the doctor first tells you that that cream, the, the placebo cream, is pain relieving, right? Even though it's not affecting your, uh, you know, sensory nerves. And then he tells you, uh, or then he, he tells you to look away, right? And he pokes you very lightly with the needle on the spot where the cream was applied. And he says, see, that, that was a shot and it wasn't even painful at all, right? Because he just lightly poked you, right? And you agree with him, You, unbeknownst to you, the first poke, wasn't really a shot, all right? It was just that it was just a light, you know, tap with the needle, intended to not deliver any pain whatsoever. But the doctor told you it was a shot, so you were expecting that. Okay, this is a full-on shot. So he then gives you a real shot after applying the fake pain relief cream, right? 
so the, the, the cream is still on your skin, right? And gives you a real shot. And you're surprised at just how little pain you feel. And you're like, oh, that really doesn't hurt at all. I'm outlining this scenario because the doctor in this case took advantage of a really interesting feature of the placebo effect. So he lightly poked you with the needle in the spot where the cream was applied while telling you that this was in fact your first shot. That solidified your brain's expectation that the cream would reduce your pain. So studies have shown that this combination of instructions, right? The doctor telling you this cream will reduce your pain as well as conditioning, right? Him sneakily reducing the intensity of the painful stimulus without you knowing. So pretending to give you that shot significantly enhances the placebo effect beyond just the instructions alone. So that is just an interesting way that the placebo effect uh, takes advantage of not only these instructions, but, but learning um, and, and sort of shapes your brain's expectations even more powerfully. But let's get a little deeper into the, the neuroscience. How does the placebo effect really work? Researchers have found that our expectations about how much pain we'll experience actually shape the brain's response to pain. And this is what we would expect. So when we think something is going to be very painful, when we have an expectation that is going to be very painful, there's heightened activation in at least three brain regions, the insular cortex, the cingulate cortex, and the medial thalamus before we experience the painful stimulus. Now, these brain regions are involved in feelings and even more importantly for our purposes, they form the core of the brain's salience network. The salience network is a brain system that detects, filters, and determines the importance of external and internal information. It is a salience detector, right? It's sort of importance detector of the brain. So an increase in the activity of this network would signal the presence of something important. So for example, a very painful stimulus that we need to pay attention to. So when we expect something to not be very painful at all, these same brain regions reduce their activity before we experience the stimulus. We expect it to be less painful and therefore of less importance. So the activity of the salience network goes down. But interestingly, it seems that the placebo effect may work primarily through these regions involved in the anticipation of pain with only a minor role for other brain regions involved in processing the pain itself. However, so, so before I move on, let me just solidify that. We're talking about the placebo effect working on a sort of anticipation level. It is, it is, uh, changing our anticipation of what that stimulus is going to feel like. However, there is evidence that the mu opioid system is also involved in the placebo effect. So mu opioids are the body's natural painkillers. They are released in response to stimuli, uh, to painful stimuli, and during 
vigorous exercise, which is also painful. They're also known as endorphins, right? Just colloquially, we sometimes call them endorphins. And they're like often, they're, they're part of the, the, the experience of like the runner's high. But mu-opioid receptors are the same receptors that are bound by painkiller drugs like Oxycontin and morphine, right? That's why they're called opiates or opioids. So studies have found that if you give someone a drug that stops the mu-opioid receptors from working, right, it blocks those receptors, the placebo effect is significantly smaller, right? It doesn't seem to uh, have as uh, the, the instructions from the doctor doesn't seem to have as strong of an effect. So blocking the mu-opioid system reduces the placebo effect. On the other hand, the placebo effect itself seems to increase the activity of the mu-opioid mu -opioid system. So it seemed, and, and that uh, increase in the mu-opioid system activity seems to occur primarily in the rostral anterior cingulate cortex and brainstem and these are regions that are directly involved in anxiety and stress. So that is not everything that's known about the placebo effect. I would definitely direct you to that article by uh, Lauren Atlas I mentioned earlier. It goes into way more detail, and there's also some, some other great reviews on this topic. But putting all this together, it seems that pain can be modulated in ex uh, by our expectations in a way that is similar to how emotions can be modulated. Yet there's an even wider overlap between pain and emotions, which we can see in a phenomenon known as social pain. I'm also going to talk about this as emotional pain. One moment, I just need a sip of water. Okay, so as I get into this section, I'm going to be relying a lot on the work of a psychologist named uh, Naomi Eisenberger. And uh, a large portion of what I'm talking about comes from a 2016 chapter of the Handbook of Emotions, which is right there on my bookshelf, um, that she she authored. And um, so I, I want to just uh, give credit where credit is due. So to get into this, some of the most painful experiences I've personally had have been the deaths of people and pets I loved. Now, we can all relate to that, right? But why do we call these experiences painful, right? We have no bruises. We don't have cuts or scrapes or physical wounds of any kind. Yet our bodies, so our bodies are intact, but our hearts feel shattered, right? This is a form of social pain. So there's nowhere in our bodies that we can point to and say, this hurts, right? Maybe like I was saying earlier about the stomach ache in response to serious anxiety, saying this hurts. But often this sort of emotional or social pain is more of a feeling of distress and a desire to make it stop, a kind of diffuse pain, almost like a mental pain. So in contrast, when you feel physical pain, when you feel a, you know, you, you break a bone or you, you get a, a bad cut or something like that, or you just have a stomach ache or an internal uh, pain somewhere, you can localize, you can typically 
pretty good uh, accuracy, localize where it is and quantify how much it hurts, right? They have the pain scale, the sort of one to 10. But you also have that same feeling of distress and the desire to make it stop. And these two components of pain, right, the, the localization and quantification on one hand, and then that sort of distress and desire to make it stop on the other hand, these two components of pain rely on different brain systems, different brain regions. So specifically, the localization and quantification of pain seems to happen mainly in two regions, the somatosensory cortices. Now, these are the this is the area of the brain. It's a, a strip of tissue on, on the uh, cortex that allows us to feel our skin and muscles on our body. So if I were to touch my hand, I'm activating this somatosensory cortex, and that's how I'm perceiving that feeling. And then the posterior insula. And the posterior insula is involved in interoception or the, ex the uh, experience of internal sensations within our bodies uh, especially the viscera, the internal organs. So if I'm feeling um, you know, very full from a meal I ate, uh, that is a result of um, activity in largely in the posterior insula. But conversely, the affective component of pain, right, that distress and the urge to stop it, is produced by the anterior insula. It's associated with activity in the anterior insula. And this region is also involved in emotional feelings. This is um, close to the region I just mentioned, the posterior insula. It is actually continuous with it, but the, the anterior insula is involved in emotional feelings, in sort of the affective component of pain as well. And the anterior uh, and the other region that is part of this uh, sort of affective component of pain uh, seems to be the anterior cingulate cortex, which I've talked a lot about before. And this is involved in things like motivation, cost benefit calculation, and emotional expression and regulation. Now, social or maybe emotional pain more broadly involves only this second component for the most part, right? It only involves that feeling of distress and the urge to make the, you know, pain, quote unquote, stop. But accordingly, social pain, so it doesn't activate the somatosensory cortex. So you would expect it, it doesn't because it's not, you know, there's nothing uh, activating on our skin or muscles to make that region become active and it doesn't activate the posterior insula. Instead, just the anterior insula, that region that's more involved in the sort of emotional feelings and the anterior cingulate cortex. And this goes for most types of social pain, including social exclusion, humiliation, rejection, and losing a loved one. Now, one implication of all this is that if you are sensitive to physical pain, you're probably also sensitive to social pain. Another is that social and physical pain accumulate. So if, for example, you're feeling the sting of rejection 
after asking someone on a date, then your sensitivity to physical pain will increase. It's an interesting finding. And this relationship works pretty much every which way. If you have a strong uh, social support network uh, in the form of, say, a, a group of friends, you'll be less sensitive to physical pain. So this sort of emotional uh, social support can buffer our experience of physical pain. And perhaps most surprisingly is that prescription opiates like Oxycontin and over-the-counter painkillers like Advil or Tylenol can decrease not only physical pain, but also social pain and the associated brain activity as well. So perhaps anything, this is kind of a speculation here, but perhaps anything that sort of releases endorphins, right? Those, those uh, mu opioids or that reduces physical pain, perhaps by reducing inflammation, will have a side effect of reducing the sting of social and emotional pain. And maybe this helps explain why exercise uh, can make us feel better emotionally, because right? it's releasing those endorphins. Now there's other stuff going on with exercise as well that uh, affects the brain in, in uh, distinct ways that makes us feel better, but just um, something to consider. Now, going to move on from talking about what pain is what uh, the sort of emotional, social over, I'm sorry, emotional and physical overlap uh, in pain. And going to talk about some strategies for finding relief from pain, particularly targeting this, this um, emotional, this affective component of pain. Now, I just want to uh, issue a caveat. As always, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a, um, a clinician. So I'm not giving this as medical advice to anybody. This is more of just general information that I might give to a friend or a family member who uh, might be experiencing some sort of pain, chronic pain, even just acute pain. Um, so yeah, just, just general information, not medical advice. Okay. So what does this mean for our everyday lives? Is it possible to take advantage of the power of expectations and the overlap between social and physical pain in order to reduce the unnecessary suffering due to pain? I think the answer is yes, and the evidence supports that idea. While there are certainly limits to this, of course, because pain is not always solely in our heads, many of our day-to-day -day pains tend to have a strong psychological component. So we can learn to suffer less and in fact to feel less pain, at least that affective component, by changing our beliefs and expectations, seeking social support, and by using our attention in specific ways. So let's get into each of those items. We'll begin with that part about beliefs and expectations. So a lot of people go into potentially uh, painful everyday experiences not only with a great deal of anxiety, but also with a fervent belief that they're going to suffer greatly. So for example, people who don't exercise much often tell themselves before they go into the gym that you know this is gonna suck, 
It's going to hurt. I really don't want to do this. It's going to be painful. And when they start the workout, guess what? They really don't want to keep doing it because it is so painful. Of course, exercise is a great example of when you would expect the pain system to be active. But the whole point of any kind of strength or endurance training is to break down muscular tissue in a way that allows it to regrow more robustly. But the context in which that occurs is hugely consequential to your subjective experience of it. The beliefs you have around it, the expectations you have around it are very consequential. I, I heard this great um, quip from the uh, neuroscientist and meditation teacher and podcaster, Sam Harris, who said that he was talking about this, this idea and saying something like, you know, if you were feeling the sensations of weightlifting uh, for no reason, if you woke up in the middle of the night and, you know, your, your chest felt like it feels when you're, you're doing uh, your last rep on your bench press, that would indicate some kind of medical emergency, right? If you felt that same, you know, 150 BPM heart rate waking up in the middle of the night, you'd think something is very wrong. But if you're doing it on purpose at the gym or you're on a run, you would realize that the pain is part of the process, right? No pain, no gain, as the saying goes. So you're already, your expectations, your belief, even if you go into the gym thinking this is going to hurt, this is going to suck, you still know that your beliefs and your expectations uh, are kind of framing that experience already. You already know this is going to hurt, so it's, but it's not necessarily something to be... Um, you know, totally concerned about. In the same way, you can dial down the subjective feeling of pain simply by noting the context in which it's occurring. So you can dial it down even more if you can change your belief about what the pain means. Let me explain what this means with another kind of everyday example. And we'll get into some more uh, serious, more like involuntary forms of pain later, but I just want to start with these everyday examples. So take spicy food, right? If you have some extremely spicy food, at the high, real extreme ends, it is possible to have an adverse health-threatening physical reaction to extremely high concentrations of capsaicin. And capsaicin is that chemical in chili peppers and hot sauce that makes them spicy. But the truth is, right, for the vast majority of cases, even if you're eating something super duper spicy, the worst thing that happens is the feeling of pain in your lips, in your mouth, maybe even in your sinuses, uh, and, and maybe some, you know, indigestion later. But there's no, and there's no doubt that this pain can be incredibly intense. You know, go uh, look up some some videos on YouTube of people doing the, the one chip challenge is an incredible uh, intensity of pain that people can go through uh, voluntarily. But, but unlike exercise or injury, this pain is not the result of any kind of tissue damage. Capsaicin binds to the same receptors that trigger a feeling of extreme heat, right? It tricks your brain into thinking that your mouth is on fire, that there's something you know very painful going on in your mouth. 
And it's even worse if you get capsaicin in your eyes or your nose or other mucosal membranes, like even those on the genitals. Don't ask me how I know that. But by understanding the mechanism by which this pain is occurring, right? When you understand that it's capsaicin binding to those receptors, that there's no real physical tissue damage going on, you can dial down the subjective intensity of the pain, or at least that sort of affective, that suffering component of the pain. I love spicy foods, and I, but even if you're a, a spicy food fan like me, who kind of goes, sometimes goes out of his way to just, I've never done like the one chip challenge or eaten a whole, um, uh, what are they, Carolina Reaper. I have eaten a whole habanero pepper a couple of times. Um, I don't do it anymore, but it's, uh, but even if you're like me, you if you were to wake up in the middle of the night with this feeling of a, of a habanero pepper on your tongue, you would be tempted to drive to the hospital. I would be tempted. I would probably go to the hospital if I, if I was having that experience. That would be horribly painful. But if I'm at you know, a Mexican restaurant or something, I would take a bite or I might you know, do a jalapeno, let's say. <laughs> but uh, something super spicy, I would do it. it. It would still hurt, but the context of the pain would help reduce my suffering, right? Even more importantly, because I know that at moderate concentrations, capsaicin can't actually hurt me, I'm able to tell myself to just relax through the pain, that it's just a sensation. And that combined with knowing that it will eventually go away when the capsaicin clears from those receptors allows me to suffer less in the face of burning pain. Okay, but exercise and spicy food are pretty trivial examples, right? They are completely voluntary. What about more serious forms of pain that we don't choose to have? Aching muscles or pinched nerves, splitting my headaches, migraines, these are much harder to cognitively reframe in the ways I just described. Because one reason is that many pains are mysterious and seemingly random. So the role of context and understanding the mechanism just might not apply. So while expectations and beliefs may have a big role to play in helping to reduce our anxiety about these pains, I think we can all agree that maybe something more direct is needed to more powerfully alleviate them. And this is where attention comes in. So let's talk about using attention uh, as a sort of pain relief um, mechanism. So attention in broad strokes is the brain's way of amplifying particular patterns of activity. It is how we focus on something at the expense of everything else going on around us at a particular time. You're watching this YouTube video, uh, you are not um, you know, distracted by the feeling of the chair on your back or the sounds in the background, presumably. Um, now you probably are because I just, I just drew your attention to them. But that's, what, that's one aspect of attention. And the thing that I'm going to get at here is that attention can do some very unintuitive things when it's deployed in particular ways. So for example, when you pay undivided attention to a particular feeling in your body for long enough, it can seem to make that feeling almost disappear. And I wanna do kind of two examples here. So first, 
This one is is very unintuitive, and I first experienced this when I was uh, like, it was several years ago, and I just sort of started trying meditation, and I was doing something uh, kind of out of the box, not a typical form of meditation, where I I just drew a dot on my bedroom wall, uh, just with a pencil, and I stared intently at that dot for like 10 minutes at a time. I just continually bring my eyes back to that dot. And when you do that, something when you just keep bringing your attention, your focus back to that one very specific stimulus, something really interesting happens. Your perception of, of the visual space seems to start to melt away. It starts to just sort of dissipate. It's very weird, and you have to do it for a while for this to occur. But that visual perception begins to just kind of crumble away. It's very weird. There's this sort of blackness that that comes over your your field of vision. Um, so that's one example. But another example is so if you were to like press your finger on the uh, uh, a surface nearby your right index finger, let's say, and then close your eyes and focus completely on the sensations of that tiny area of your body. If you do that for long enough, every time you notice a feeling of pressure, you re, uh, you refocus on that sensation. You just continually stay focused on it or bring your attention back to it. And you hold it there for a while, for at least at least a minute, but maybe more. You may notice the sensation of pressure becomes harder to feel. It starts to dissipate. It seems to just sort of disintegrate almost. It becomes harder and harder to tell where that pressure is or if it's even there. That conscious feeling becomes fuzzier, right? And okay, this of course, both of the things I just mentioned can seem like really trivial examples. But this points to a phenomenon where the brain can use attention to change or even disrupt conscious perception. So what I'm getting at is, um, sorry, looked like my, okay, continuing on. Um, what, I'm, what I'm getting at is something like a mindfulness-based technique for reducing pain. So mindfulness is a specific type of present moment awareness. I've talked about it several times on this channel, at least, where you're simply noticing what is happening in your moment to moment experience without any judgment and even without any sort of effort, any doing. And at the same time, you are repeatedly bringing yourself back to the present moment after inevitably getting distracted by thoughts and memories and other sources of distraction. Mindfulness meditation has an enormous number of psychological benefits, which I, I talked a lot about in my last live stream. I've talked about with, with uh, Taylor Guthrie on our podcast, The Social Brain, but it includes improving focus and emotion regulation. Those are two of the big ones, improving our ability to focus and regulate our emotions. And beyond this, 
in my experience, and, and not of course not mine alone, many uh, meditators going thousands of years back have noticed that there's a, a profound experience of kind of selflessness, ability to no longer experience the sort of narrator, the, the uh, self, the, the doer inside the head um, that can arise during meditation. And that is kind of an aside because when it comes to pain reduction, mindfulness can confer amazing benefits even for novice meditators, for people who have never done it before, and of course, without that need for, for selflessness that I, or state of selflessness that I just uh, described. And um, as a 20, uh, there was a 2020 review in the journal Current Pain and Headache Reports by Alex Ginich Diamant and colleagues, um, published in 2020, where they explained, quote, Mindfulness-based therapies can improve pain-related symptoms across a range of conditions, including fibromyalgia, migraine, and irritable bowel syndrome, with recent meta-analyses on chronic pain, rheumatoid arthritis, and cancer-related pain confirming earlier findings. So they explain uh, that mindfulness improves pain-related symptoms in a way that is distinct from the placebo effect and it does not seem to involve the opioid system. Yet, similar to the placebo effect, mindfulness-based techniques seem to reduce that affective, sort of anticipatory component of pain. This makes perfect sense because mindfulness has been repeatedly shown to improve regu uh, emotion regulation circuits in the brain, which I was just, just uh, alluding to. In general, Mindfulness has been shown to increase functional connectivity between the cortex and subcortical regions, like the amygdala and brainstem. And this may uh, partly reflect cognitive control, greater cognitive control over feelings and physiological arousal, like the, the stress response, because these subcortical regions are directly involved in producing feelings and our stress response. But additionally, mindfulness tends to downregulate the activity of the default mode network and disconnect it from that salience network we mentioned earlier. So the default mode network is involved in um, mind wandering, in uh, thinking about our, ourselves in a kind of auto autobiographical and social sense, and really involved in the sort of just day-to-day -day th uh, thinking and, and um, uh reflection on our past and on our future. And so it seems to disconnect this network from that salience network. It, mindfulness also seems to strengthen the functional connectivity between the frontoparietal cognitive control networks and the default mode network. Now, I know there's a lot of uh, jargon terminology, but what all this amounts to is a picture of mindfulness as a method of detaching our affective experience from the stories we tell about ourselves that sort of play out in our minds. And to, to uh, encapsulate this, I want to quote a 2017 review of uh, the Neuroscience of Mindfulness by Wheeler, Arnkoff, and Glass. It was published in the journal Mindfulness. And they said, quote, the preliminary evidence reviewed here suggests that mindfulness practitioners 
may be able to experience negative emotions and sensations without adding further negative valence brought on by past experience or concern for the future, a skill that is critical for psychological health. I'll just say that one more time. The preliminary evidence reviewed here suggests that mindfulness practitioners may be able to experience negative emotions and sensations without adding further negative valence brought on by past experience or concern for the future. Now, that's that's interesting in itself, right? That points to a role uh, or, or maybe helps explain the role of mindfulness in helping to, to um, relieve pain. But when it comes to pain, one particular feature of mindfulness meditation may play an outsized role in pain reduction. Slow, controlled breathing. So as Jinich Diamant, that uh, review I, I mentioned earlier, the 2020 review by Jinich Diamant and colleagues explains, quote, crucially, since, since slow-paced breathing is easier to perform than mindful attention to the breath, slow, attentive breathing may be a critically valuable therapy for patients seeking a less cognitively demanding non-opioidergic, that is not involving the opioid system, self-administered pain therapy. So slow, attentive breathing seems to be a component of mindfulness that is very helpful uh, when we're talking about pain therapy. So pain can be reduced by using our attention in specific ways and by changing our expectations and beliefs about it. But so far, we have discussed techniques that involve only one person, the one feeling the pain, right? As I hinted at earlier though, there is a role for people, for other people in this process as well. So let's talk about social support, the role of social support. So of course, as human beings, we need strong social ties to feel and perform at our best. Many studies have shown that loneliness is associated with poor health, uh, with poor health outcomes, like even an increased risk of Alzheimer's disease. But also long periods of isolation lead to abnormal patterns of brain activity in regions associated with social cognition, as you'd expect, and cognitive control. There is a large literature on the neuroscience of loneliness and some of the health outcome, negative health outcomes it can have. And so I just sort of just really briefly mentioning that. But when, and so when it comes to pain, this is largely the same story, but with a few distinctions. So a 2016 review published in the journal Pain by Robert R. Edwards and colleagues explained that over a dozen studies have shown that one's perceived level of social support, quote, was associated with better outcomes in persons with conditions such as spinal cord injury, multiple sclerosis, and acquired amputation. Social support, so perceived level of social support was associated with better outcomes in persons with conditions such as spinal cord injury, multiple sclerosis, and acquired amputation. Yet they also note that if this social support is, quote, overly solicitous, 
it can actually lead to poor pain outcomes. And what they mean by that is that if you're experiencing chronic pain and the people around you are overly overprotective and excessively concerned such that they encourage you to be less active and less empowered, less efficacious, that may not work in your favor and it may make the pain harder to deal with. So it seems overall, though, that when we are supported by other people who care about our well-being and who encourage a positive mindset as well as self-efficacy, this chronic pain tends to uh, have chronic pain patients tend to have uh, greater relief using a variety of more traditional pain treatments. So it is this idea that the social support, our perceived level of social support, and it sort of encouraging uh, positive, uh, you know, encouraging self-efficacy type of social support tends to enhance the effects of other pain treatments, these more traditional, um, maybe even like biologically focused pain treatments. And that same review by Edwards and colleagues emphasized that the relationship between the patient and the therapist may be especially powerful in this regard, the patient and the clinician, that relationship may be especially powerful because when there's a strong working alliance and positive regard between them, the patient is more likely to benefit from pain treatments, according to Edwards and colleagues. Okay, so I've talked about a lot of stuff about pain, and I want to uh, sort of bring this to a sort of a conclusion and kind of summarize what I've been talking about here. So we've been exploring the nature of pain, and it's clear that pain is not merely physical. It's not just a physical sensation, but also deeply entangled with our emotional states, if not a sort of emotion in its own right. This is particularly evident in the phenomenon of the placebo effect. Expectations and beliefs significantly influence our pain perception. That effect highlights the mind's power, the brain's power over bodily uh, sensations, really the brain's power to shape perception because certain brain regions are activated by mere belief, even in the absence of a direct physiological intervention. Now, similarly, the concept of social, social pain, the emotional distress, um, caused by experiences like rejection or loss, activates brain areas akin to those involved in physical pain. And this again showcases this intricate link between our emotions and physical sensations. Pain management, as we talked about, extends beyond traditional medical interventions. Those medical interventions are, in, are no doubt extremely important and should not be brushed aside but it, it extends beyond them. It is, there's a, a, a kind of holistic picture of pain management we can paint that involves not only these physical interventions, but also these uh, you know, mental, emotional, cognitive interventions. One in particular, mindfulness practices and especially controlled breathing are effective methods of alleviating pain, especially the the, uh, the affective or anticipatory component, which underscores this role of psychological approaches in pain treatment. 
Now, these, the efficacy of these methods lies in their ability to alter our perception of pain, our perception of pain, and they offer a, a kind of a testament to the power of our minds, to our brains in managing physical discomfort. Remember the, the role of attention there. Now, the role of social support in pain management is also crucial. Research indicates that a supportive social environment can greatly enhance pain relief efforts. We did mention that the overprotective behavior or excessive concern from others, that overly solicitous sort of support uh, might lead to poorer pain outcomes in, in certain cases. So there's a complex relationship here between social interactions and our experience of pain. But again, this, this, this intricate connection underlines the importance of considering both physical and psychological and even social aspects in the holistic treatment of pain. So that is kind of what we talked about here in a nutshell. And that is not an entirely uh, you know, exhaustive uh, picture of the neuroscience of pain or the placebo effect or any of what we talked about. It is just kind of an overview that I think might be helpful to some people, and I really hope it is. And if you're watching this and you want to stay connected with this channel, whether you are a, a Patreon supporter or not, I would encourage you to go to senseofmindshow.com newsletter and sign up for the newsletter there because you'll get uh, notifications of new stuff going on with the channel as well as just uh, the new videos coming out. And um, there's going to be more new stuff coming in 2024. So I just want to thank everybody who's watched any of my videos over the last year or in the last few years. It's been a really fun journey, really interesting really appreciate you all. And I hope you have a wonderful pain-free or at least a reduced pain day. Thank you so much for watching. I'll catch you next time.